calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Hello again, everybody. It's Ron Remkes here, and today is my distinct pleasure uh, to introduce you to uh, Professor Rafael Duati, who uh, is Professor of Quantitative Finance at Stony Brook University and uh, is also the founder of a company called uh, uh, Risk Data and uh, has also been affiliated with uh, the Laboratory of Excellence uh, affiliated with Sarbonne in France. And, uh, Professor, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much, Ron. Uh, thank you for this. Uh, I know you have a number of questions on the evolution of the asset management industry today. Absolutely. So uh, we'll start with that, that first one. And I wanted to talk with you specifically about the evolution of risk management strategies and, and how, that, uh, how you view that history and uh, where you think we're at today. Uh, risk management, it's the history of life. Essentially, risk is life. Uh, so it started very, very, very long ago. It didn't start with the financial industry or whether, yeah, you can consider the financial industry also started with life. So, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, so it's a very long story. So it's difficult to put a starting point. Now, there, are, there have been some moments of disruption in the evolution of the risk management industry. One big one is when the regulators put their hand into it. Uh, with Basel Accords, Basel One, that was, you know, on how much money can I lend to the, an institution can lend with respect to how much capital it needs to hold to be able to lend money. Yeah. Basel Two was about value at risk. How much can I trade? Can, what kind of exposure can I have to markets? And uh, uh, how much, again, capital do I need to hold to be able to take some speculative risk? Mm-hmm. Uh, Basel III, uh, that came essentially after the financial crisis, uh, was uh, putting, you know, supposedly uh, fixing some issues with Basel II, uh, although I'm not sure it was true uh, progress, but that's another story. Um, so the evolution of the uh, risk management if you look at it from the regulation point of view, it's the visible part of the iceberg. Uh, what we observe, uh, the, the whole of finance has been uh, balancing expected returns with the risk being taken. Sure. Mm-hmm. And so people looked at the risks. Uh, you know, there has been a lot of theory about it. Uh, I include in the theories a debate between uh, normal Gaussian distributions and fat tail distribution on the broad versus other people, uh, Black Scholes, whoever, uh, it goes beyond that uh, because the practice of risk is uh, something that any investor, any trader has to make on the, every minute a decision of whether I do that versus the risk it's really like any human being actually like you cross the street uh, uh, 
the quantitative part is just one aspect of it. So, certainly, uh, the number of issues that people have been looking at um, to make decisions, I'm not sure that global number of issues have increased. It's just the fact that the theoritization, the quantitization, like the world is becoming more quantitative, so the quantitivization of the evaluation of risk has increased. So you see more and more sophisticated risk models simply because we put, put more data in those risk models. Sure. Mm-hmm. Instead of going intuitively, you know, that I can do, that I can do, now they try to put that into computers. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether they do it well or not, that's another issue that's probably we're going to address, but there is an evolution in here. The flip side is that people tend to follow algorithms, tend to follow more and more, uh, you know, to, they, they, there is a, a decrease in the experience with the, in, the, in the analysis. So you, it's like, you know, the, in the 90s, value-at-risk period, you had on the one hand regulators making calculations and on the other hand people making true decisions that were not based on regulation. Today, you see a lot of things that are simply based on cost of capital regulation and they forget about actually analyzing the risks. Now, one of the the comments you made in your work uh, was about uh, optimization and what you said is that uh, the optimization, it... um, maximizes uh, the return for a given level of risk, but it, what you're really doing is uh, minimizing the amount of uh, visible risk uh, and max- relative to the, the amount, the amount of, of hidden invisible, risk. Hidden risk. Can you yeah. talk about that? I, I want to make sure that um, we understand that. And yeah, the, 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 this joke, I don't remember who made that joke. He was some economist somewhere. Uh, he said, if we want to have less car accidents, instead of airbags, we should have a sword going out of the wheel. <laughs> <laughs> I like that, actually. The, the, the problem with the, with the visible versus invisible risk, we know that um, people uh, you know, evaluate risk, as we just said, you know, uh, permanently, and then they make decisions on how much should I invest I like this investment, I like this company, but let's see, I like this fund. But how much money shall I put? If it's too risky, I put less money. If it's less risky, I put more money. And obviously, you will not assess uh, the, the amount of money that you put in a money market fund versus uh, the amount of money you put in an emerging market uh, uh, Brazilian uh, equity where you expect a lot of return but also accept a lot of risk on it. Yeah. So, uh, the, 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 so you have to have some evaluation of risk. Now, that evaluation of risk, as I just said, there is something that is visible and something that is invisible. Even if it's invisible, you still take into account. Uh, there are certain things in life that you would not do even though you cannot formally evaluate the consequence of doing it like you don't pass a red light even though there is no cops around. Yeah. Just because you know that if you start doing so, you cannot know what the evaluation, but eventually you blew up the system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, so, so there is this permanent evaluation of visible versus invisible. Now, what happens if you use optimizers 
an optimizer is an algorithm. It only gives you something that is related to whatever data you give it to it. So it will calculate this visible part of the risk and completely ignore the invisible part. Invisible means invisible to the algorithm. It can be visible to you, but you just don't take care, don't take, you know. So usually people manage that by saying, let me put some limits. I don't want to be more than 10% exposed to any of my investments or things like this. But still, it's not a formal evaluation of the invisible part. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the, the mechanism by which optimizers uh, work, if, unless you specifically include some methodology to go and dig that invisible risk, into the optimizer, which makes it, of course, a bit more complicated than the one that I usually used. Uh, and I'm going way beyond simply using fat tails. We are going to, to see you know, how you can put those uh, um, uh, invisible parts, if you want, hidden parts, into the optimizer. It's possible. Yeah. Hmm? Uh, but uh, the, the so, so if you simply optimize using the visible part, what you end with is that you have shrunk the invisible, the visible part, and you have left over the invisible. What's the consequence? The consequence is that story of the airbag versus the sword. The consequence is, if I'm telling you, your, if I have an algorithm, that on top of that is in, in line with regulations, and it's telling you your risk is one million, I shrunk the risk from three millions to one million. What's your first thing? Well, let me increase the investment. And by increasing the investment, you increase by as much the invisible part. So if, your, say, your invisible part was 10 million, your visible part was 3 million. Now you shrink the, invis- the visible part to 1 million, but you keep the invisible part at 10 million. Yeah. Now you increase your investment by a factor 3 because you say, in fact, I can accept 3 million. Then you've brought your invisible part to 30 million now. Right. That's the issue. Okay. Um, so I want to turn uh, the conversation a little bit to um, uh, Hyman Minsky. Uh, you've uh, written uh, a little bit about uh, his work, and basically his hypothesis is that stability leads to instability. And it goes through sort of a sequence of what he called hedge borrowers, uh, speculative borrowers, and then Ponzi borrowers. Um, can you talk about sort of where you see um, you know, the U.S. economy, for instance, right now in terms of the, the Minsky hypothesis? So what's interesting with Minsky, and I know you asked me whether I was a fan. I don't like the word fan because I'm not a fan. I try to stay, you know, calm and analyze things you know, in a cold manner, yeah. but still I like, uh, and it's easy, <clears throat> every time you see someone whose work was meaningful, uh, the value of Minsky, I mean, he didn't do extraordinary math, he didn't do extraordinary economics, what gave so much value to him is the effort that people put into trying to ignore him. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, and that's why he was so important. It's, he was so important because, because of the effort that people did in trying to ignore him that eventually led to the uh, 2008 crisis, which was a typical Minsky moment. Hmm? So, uh, people talk of the Minsky moment. Minsky moment is, 
when you have this instability that, that burns the whole system. You have, in fact, plenty of Pinsky moments. It can go from individual to companies to groups of companies of sectors to uh, countries, etc. It's uh, the, the, this instability hypothesis has numerous versions of it, yeah. depending on which system you apply, but it's always the same mechanism. Mm-hmm. This feedback loop where trust is destroyed and therefore, you know, to refinance, basically the, the whole system of finance is based on trust. Mm-hmm. And when trust is destroyed, you enter into a, a deadly loop. Mm-hmm. And that can be done uh, yourself with your own financial situation for some change in your thing. And then the joke saying that banks will lend you money uh, when you don't need it and like you know it lends you an umbrella when it's uh, shining and ask you to give it back when it's raining mm-hmm. uh, this is in some sense also Minsky logic mm-hmm. uh, the, 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 the reaction of markets regulators telling you you have to post more capital when the market is more volatile is also opening a Minsky logic because basically it forces you to sell when the market is more volatile. So that precisely when you have a downturn, where any savvy person will say, okay, well, let's keep it calm uh, because we need to calm down the markets. No, the regulator will say, no, no, that's time to sell. So the, the, the markets more or less go through some sort of um, cycle of uh, stability and instability. So how does someone go about measuring or monitoring the instability and where you're at at any given point in the cycle? So that, that's a tricky question. I mean, I'm not, I don't have, even though I've worked in that area a lot, and as I was saying, you know, numerous of, uh, of my PhD students are doing their PhDs on that topic precisely. So it's, and I can tell you, the more I work on it, the more difficult I find it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm always split between the two logics. Uh, typical Nassim Taleb's logic saying uh, don't try to predict black swans, just get ready for it if ever it comes. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can put it in a simple words. Uh, you don't buckle up in your car when the accident is coming. You, are, you buckle up when you enter the car. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a very valid point. Uh, I share it. At the same time, uh, you have to monitor the cost of insurance. You can, uh, when it's buckling up in a car, okay, because it, it's cheap to do it, so you do it. If uh, uh, if you ask the fire the fire department how they monitor uh, the risk of fires in California, obviously they will not put the same level of surveillance, firemen means, etc., in, in in winter and in summer. They know that the summer period is much more prone to fires than winter. Hmm? So that doesn't mean that it will be completely naked in winter. They will maintain a certain level of surveillance, but not as much as summer. And they will not be able to maintain the summer level throughout the the year. It would be way too costly Hmm? and suddenly very suboptimal. Okay. Hmm? So in here, uh, yeah, the, the, the question of how you monitor the instability yeah, you have periods where markets are more stable, periods of markets where are less stable. And a savvy investment would permanently be protected against black swan, but protection has to be tighter when you're more prone to instability. 
or when you're in irrational periods, like speculative bubbles. I mean, last one was in January, and we just saw what happened in February, the very last one, but there's just a sequence of them, you know, big, small, big markets, small markets, localized, general, etc. Uh, but you have uh, um, periods uh, where it's worth spending uh, a lot of money, whether it's buying options, having other type of strategies, spending money, uh, protecting the downside very tight, and other periods where you still want to protect the extreme tail, but uh, at, at a lower cost and accepting more volatility because you want to take more advantage of the uh, uptrend. So uh, I know you've developed something called dominant factor analysis. Um, how can you give us just kind of a, a quick overview of what that is and, and how that might fit into a risk yeah. management system? It comes from a philosophy. Um, evaluating risk, and now we come, you know, the, the people speak a lot of uh, fat tails, Gaussian distribution, etc. you know, how many, what's the probability of going, I mean, if you stay with normal distribution, the probability of uh, three, four sigmas is practically zero. Uh, forget about beyond that. And in real markets, uh, 87 was a 20 sigma event. So uh, it's the probability of you through the tunnel effect going through the wall. So obviously there are events that prove, that disprove the Gaussian distribution and that prove that you have fat tails. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not sufficient to just go here. And uh, the evaluation of risk is not just an evaluation of fat tails. Uh, you have to understand where the risk is coming from. Mm-hmm. Uh, so dominant factor analysis is that. It's before telling you how much is the risk, it's telling you where it's coming from. Uh, so the idea is a very, si- at first it's a very simple idea. Uh, take an investment, I have no clue, even that investment can be pure equity or something like this, I have no clue where it's coming from, so let me uh, scan a very large number of factors, I'm talking several hundreds of factors, Sure. but of course you cannot make a 100 factors model on a piece of data, just a few tens of data, it's not how that works, you don't know, so you have to select which factors. So the first thing is a simple scanner, Look at factors one at a time. And so you can have different versions of the same thing. If you look, you know, if you look at the, the sensitivity of, uh, of an investment to the S&P and then sensitivity to the growth factors and the value factor, of course, they will be very close. They're 90% correlated. 90%, no 100. So you'll see those little nuances. And you will scan a lot of factors, even factors that you didn't expect. So you'll pass credit risk through stocks. You'll pass, you have an investment in, uh, I don't know, in some uh, uh, commodity-driven investment, and you find out that this investment is exposed to Canada and Australia. The investment has nothing to do with Canada and Australia. Just the fact that they have a common risk, which is commodity risk. So you will see a certain number of things. And so dominant factor is first step, scan many, many, many risks and check specifically the extreme behavior. 
If I want to know whether you're a good person or not a good person, okay, I can have a drink with you and see whether we share the same uh, brand of uh, beer or whatever. It's not the way I will evaluate. I will, if I, at some point I see you in some sort of stress situation and you have to react, that will give me much more information on you, yeah. even if it's a single event out of 10 years that we have known each other, yeah. it has more value than all the good time we had together. Sure. Mm -hmm. So this is, uh, uh, so you, you will test the phones through whether it's related to a factor, whether a, fact, a risk factor is dominant or not dominant, will essentially depends on uh, those small moments where you have a move that was bigger than usual, either for the risk factor or for your investment. And if you see some commonality, then you say, there is a relation. Let's see that what that relation, let's have a closer look at the relation, but there is a relation. That factor is part of my list of risk factors. Mm -hmm. okay. Second step, look at now that risk factor, you, that's precisely when you build a list of risk factors, the first thing you do is that you create a long history of it, typical at least 20 years. Mm -hmm. So that you see how that factor behaved through the years, through the different crises, etc. That's the second step. Mm -hmm. Now, if I'm telling you, okay, well, uh, in normal situation, my beta is one or zero or something like this, but when it goes down or when it goes extreme up, uh, my beta goes to two or goes to three. I've seen that. Mm -hmm. uh, because my investment is particularly fragile. Or on the contrary, up to a certain level, the beta is one, but then turns out that the investment is savvy and tends to, uh, tends to have a, a zero beta beyond a certain point. Mm -hmm. One or the other can happen. One is anti-fragile, the other one is fragile. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's the second step where you see. And then you can then remember, oh, I remember that factor in 98, it did that. In 2000, when there was a burst of tech bubble, it did that. And if I map that risk that I observed in my risk factor onto my current sensitivity of the investment, then I get some of the hidden risk of the investment. Even though it never occurred to that particular phone that was created five years ago, I can say, well, if that phone goes on with this kind of sensitivity, potentially, if a crisis like happened in 98 and 2000 occurs tomorrow, here is a potential risk. So that's why dominant factor is a way, which is an algorithm, it's mathematical, but it's a way to uh, introduce those hidden risks, those that never occurred before. Right. Hmm? Okay. It's not perfect. It's just one way, you know, it's like I say, you know, the, the, if I evaluate a person on whatever stress situation I observe, I may be wrong. I may be, you know, maybe that there was some reason why that person reacted this way in, on that particular day and I mis-evaluated, uh, but at least, you know, give me some information which is valuable information. Sure. So I think we have time for about one more question, and uh, I wanted to turn that to the uh, question of <clears throat> active versus passive. So there's obviously been uh, a lot of work uh, and contributions from people like you and uh, many others uh, in quantitative finance uh, to develop risk management and systemic risk evaluation tools and so forth. Um, 
and we've got this wave of artificial intelligence and AI, you know, coming into the market and machine learning and all that. And how is this um, having an impact on the active versus passive debate? You know, can can active managers still compete in that environment? And if so, how? And how how might that all play out? That's a very very um, it's a difficult question. It's also a very burning question. So it needs to be addressed. Sure. Absolutely needs to be addressed. Uh, the best thing is remember all the mistakes of the past. First mistake, 87. 87 was active versus passive already. It was people who introduced the idea of portfolio insurance, saying the industry should turn to protecting the downside by replicating a call option. And there was the idea, you know, abstract idea that a dynamic strategy could create a call option, etc. Uh, this is, and, and the, it blew up because precisely the consequence of this algorithm, even though it was not a computer algorithm, it was implemented by people, it was still an algorithm, the consequence was sell when the market is going down. First downturn, the market dropped, boom. Mm-hmm. So that's, uh, we, we, more recently, it's comparable to the flash crash we had in 2010, in May 2010, uh, there was this uh, famous flash crash where the, 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 the Dow made a minus 10% within the day right. and then came back. Right. Uh, this one was computerized, but it was the same logic, essentially. Mm-hmm. So it was like some common uh, um, supposedly protections, stop losses that were in the computer programs that people didn't realize that all the computer programs had the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, the, 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 the active versus passive, we're in an environment where we have equity risk. We have bond risk. Almost comparable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, if interest rates rise and go to levels that we knew in the 70s or 80s, uh, we have a very serious bond risk. Mm-hmm. So, we have a whole uh, pension fund management industry that is... Uh, still challenging to, to be uh, um, uh, on, their, on their ratios and, uh, still, uh, and still sitting on equity investment and bond investment, and both are at risk. So what's their reaction? Okay, let's go to active investment. Let's go to artificial intelligence. Let's go to robotization of the investment. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's good, it's bad. I'm just saying don't be lured. Don't be what? Lured. Don't be... Uh, uh, it, it may look good uh, on paper. The reality is as soon as you implement things at the scale of the global investment industry, you have all those instabilities that come in. Mm-hmm. So it's difficult. The only thing... I don't think you can seriously avoid economic cycles. You can still avoid the big cliffs. By if, if you try to, see, to think that you can avoid the economic cycles, then you climb, you climb, you climb, like in the, between the, the, the Nasdaq crisis in 2000 until 2007, and then you drop brutally. Yeah. And that's what happens when you try to ignore a cycle. What happens is that if you have those methods, and everyone has different methods to try to anticipate the, 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 the downturn of the cycle, uh, 
and try to anticipate the stability, monitor stability, then people will react, but at different moments. The, the best thing that can happen is on when nobody reacts at the same moment. Nobody has the same algorithm. Yeah. That's the best thing that can be. You have diversification in these strategies. Then the active management makes sense. Hmm? If you... There is a bubble. Some people believe in it. Some people don't believe in it. And some people decide to stay a bit longer. Some people, they are scared. And, uh, and you put some cost at staying there. Then, in some sense, you smooth out the, 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 the activeness of the management. And prevent the bubble from occurring. And you, you, you kind of deflate bubbles in a smoother manner than the pure blow-up. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, uh, I'm sorry that's all we have time for today, but uh, Professor, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for joining us as well. Uh, Be sure to check out all of our content online at cfainstitute.org as well as the Enterprising Investor blog. Copyright 2018, CFA Institute, all rights reserved. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regards to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.